VegCast begins VegCast at 40. Hello, I'm Vance. I'll be your host. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, VegCast turns 40 with this podcast, the 40th VegCast, and the second for February 2008. Really... Kind of squeezing it in this time. We had to go to the extra day to have enough time to put this one together, but we did indeed put together a full menu, as always, for you. And this time out, we're going to be looking at the huge meat recall that was spurred by a Humane Society of the United States investigation with a hidden camera, and you've probably heard something about that, uh, the ongoing hearings. Uh, investigations into the uh, safety of the meat supply. We're going to be talking with Paul Shapiro of the Humane Society who helped put that investigation together uh, about how that came together and where they expect this to go. Uh, We'll also be following up on a, a previous podcast and how the uh, this recall might intersect with that, so check back on that. And uh, we will have a science fact that may be considered related as to do with animal intelligence. We will also have a song that is definitely related to one of the one of those key risks uh, of the food supply. And uh, so that is our full menu. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this 40th edition podcast we like to call okay welcome back everybody to vegcast the veggie podcast i'm vance and this podcast is sponsored by temptation vegan ice cream the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream made on dedicated vegan equipment by dedicated vegans you can check them out at GoTemptation.com. And now, without further ado, let's hear the interview with Paul Shapiro of the Humane Society of the United States. Right now on VegCast, we have joining us by phone Paul Shapiro of the Humane Society of the United States. Paul, welcome to VegCast. Thanks, Vance. I'm glad to be on. And we're glad to have you. We wanted to talk, obviously, about uh, some of the biggest news to hit uh, the basically the whole food industry uh, over the past year, and that's uh, the USDA's uh, record-setting recall of production from the uh, plant in California where you folks had an undercover investigator uh, taping video, which has gotten out and kind of opened some eyes around the country to uh, some some horrific abuses of animals that are going on there. Now, um, we're taping this on uh, on Friday the 22nd, I should say that, because this, this story just keeps on moving, and I don't know where it uh, will be by the time I actually get all this podcast processed and out next week. But um, but can you catch us up to speed on, a, on basically where the things are at in terms of how the video has, uh, you know, been distributed, what its effect has been, other than, obviously, the recall? Sure. Well, first, for for folks who aren't as familiar with the investigation, essentially what happened is that the Humane Society of the United States had one of our undercover investigators gain employment at a Southern California dairy cow slaughter plant. And while there, he videotaped some of the most egregious examples of overt animal cruelty that we've ever seen. 
the videotape shows workers kicking cows, ramming them with the blades of a forklift, jabbing them in the eyes, electrocuting them, even waterboarding them, uh, something that I, I had never seen done to animals before, where crippled cows who were unable to stand had live hoses put up their nostrils and down their throats in an effort to get them to stand. All of this to try to march these poor, helpless animals into the slaughter plant so they could squeeze every last dollar out of these animals. Now, in the wake of this investigation, the plant has now been shut down for three weeks, which is an extraordinarily long time for a slaughter plant to be shut down for animal cruelty violations. Uh, normally, USDA inspectors are loath to shut down a plant, even for an hour, let alone for weeks on end. Two of the slaughter plant's employees, including one of them who's a manager, have now been charged with criminal animal cruelty, the manager with five felony cruelty counts, which is something that's very rare for cases of farm animal cruelty, especially cases of cruelty to animals who are at the slaughter plant. Um, that's a, a very rare case where slaughter plant employees are actually charged with criminal cruelty, let alone felonies. Then, as you noted, Vince, the USDA initiated the largest meat recall in U.S. history, 143 million pounds of beef that this plant sent out recalled because not only are these animals being treated extraordinarily cruelly and inhumanely, but the fact that they were slaughtering crippled cows, those who are too injured even to stand or walk, means that there's a higher food safety risk, not only of mad cow disease, which has been more publicized, but also of illnesses like E. coli, salmonella. And so there's this major beef recall. Several congressional hearings have now been scheduled to look into the food safety inspection program, look at how what, what Congress needs to do in order to rectify this type of situation where such overt violations could be going on right under the noses of USDA's inspectors. We also have the nation's editorial boards from everywhere from USA Today to New York Times to smaller papers editorializing, criticizing the USDA for its lax enforcement when it comes to some of the most basic animal welfare and food safety uh, violations. So. There's been a huge fallout from this case. I, I think it's safe to say it's the, the largest uh, news story relating to cruelty to farm animals ever, um, in, in certainly in, in our lifetimes, possibly the largest cruelty to animal story. I think this might even be a bigger news story than the Michael Vick scandal was. So um, the, the fallout has been absolutely immense. It's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but it's interesting. The, the whole, just the phrase, cruelty to farm animals, is, uh, I think for most of the public, kind of a, cognitive dissonance because we make a distinction between animals that it's possible to be cruel to and animals that um, are mere machines that, you know, that only exist in order to feed us. And I'm, I'm hoping anyway that this is going to help break down that uh, fantasy barrier that uh, a lot of the public has created. Oh, I, I could not agree with you more, Vance. I think that this is sensitizing Americans to the plight of farm animals and reminding them that just like the dogs and cats we welcome into our homes, farm animals are individuals who have interests, and most importantly, they have an interest in avoiding suffering. Yes, yet egregious suffering is too often what we force upon them, not only at slaughter plants, but also on factory farms, at livestock auctions, in transport trailers, these animals are largely ignored by our society, and our goal at the Humane Society of the United States is to shine a bright spotlight on these animals' misery so we can let the public know what the meat, egg, and dairy industries are doing to these animals who deserve our protection. 
Well, let me just ask you, uh, before we get into any of the specifics of the investigation, we've kind of caught people up on where things are now in terms of how this bombshell has uh, kind of propagated outward uh, through the culture. Where would you like it to be? I mean, not just, you know, saying, oh, I want, I would like the whole world to go vegetarian, but what, what specific effects of this uh, investigation and any congressional uh, oversight into it would you like to see as a, you know, a, as a specific response to this? Well, uh, you know, of course, first of all, I certainly wouldn't object to the whole world doing just that. But, um, but in, you know, we're living in the, in the world of reality here. And I think that what you bring up in terms of specific things that Congress and USDA can do to help make this situation less unbearable uh, are a few things. Number one, the USDA has a policy in which it still allows for some crippled cows to go and get slaughtered and sold for human food. That needs to end. They should not be allowing any cows who are crippled, no matter what point they become crippled, whether it's before inspection, after inspection, it shouldn't matter. If cows are crippled, they should be humanely euthanized immediately, not tormented, not tortured, not dragged into the slaughter plant and slaughtered for human food. They should be humanely euthanized immediately, and USDA can change that policy today. They don't need to wait for an act of Congress. They don't need to do anything except change their policy, and the USDA ought to do that right now. At the congressional level, we need to do two things. First, pass the Downed Animal and Food Safety Protection Act. That's an act that's been pending in Congress for years. It's come very close to enactment in the past, but it's failed. And essentially what it would do is it would create a law that would prohibit the slaughter of these crippled cows. So it could, no, regardless of what administration is in there, USDA couldn't change the policy without going back to Congress. It would, it would codify this downer slaughter ban that we've been calling for for so many years. Second, a newer bill that's been pending for a couple years now is the Farm Animal Stewardship Purchasing Act. This is a bill that sets very modest criteria relating to animal welfare for any federally procured animal products. So it's to say that if you're going to sell animal products to the federal government, you need to meet a very basic set of criteria that include not confining your animals in battery cages, veal crates, and gestation crates, not force-feeding them the way they do in the foie gras industry, not starving them the way some egg producers starve their birds when they want to force-molt them, and humanely euthanizing or providing veterinary care for animals who are sick or injured. So it's a very moderate set of standards, but it would help improve the welfare of millions of animals who are used to supply the federal government, not only for the school lunch program, but for the military, for the prison system, and any other federal procurement policies that there are. Okay. Well, let's um, just talk briefly about how this came about, because I have to say that when um, that I first read about this on um, a blog called AmericaBlog.com, uh, which doesn't usually deal with food safety issues, but more political issues, and the headline that they had was um, cows being waterboarded on the way to slaughter. And as soon as I looked into the story, I thought, what a brilliant coup by the Humane Society to manage to bring together all of these things in one uh, in incident, uh, which is waterboarding, which you know has captured the public imagination, uh, which is the fact that it's a dairy cow being slaughtered, which is still news to a lot of Americans, um, and the fact that this beef was going uh, directly into the school lunch program, or much of it was. And um, I thought, boy, they really must have worked and planned for a long time to come up with the perfect place 
to stake out, not that you guys would know exactly what was going on there, but that that those kinds of parameters were already uh, were were brilliantly <laughs> combined, and yet what I'm hearing all the public statements from the Humane Society is that this was randomly chosen. So can I just pin down when you say randomly? I mean, you didn't just like, you know, have a list of, of plants and throw a dart at the wall, did you? Um, first of all, I, I wish that I could say that we were so brilliant. Um, but the reality is this was a completely randomly chosen plant, and it wasn't even that we have a, a master list of slaughter plants and threw a dart at the wall. It was that uh, one of us drove by this place and saw that it was uh, a slaughter plant and thought, well, let's apply for a job and see what happens. Uh, that's really um, the extent of it. I mean, that that's really what happened. We, we I had never heard of this slaughter plant beforehand in my life. I certainly had no idea that it was involved in the school lunch program. This is all uh, what we learned at, during the course of the investigation. Once our investigator gained employment there, we started seeing this footage coming back of animals who were being waterboarded, who were being electrocuted, who were being beaten and otherwise tortured. Um, we realized the enormity of this, that it was routine abuse that was going on, done by workers who had been there for many years, and it was being done out in the open. It wasn't covert. It wasn't something that workers tried to hide. It was just being done right out in the open. And we learned that it was a supplier to the school lunch program, to, to some fast food companies as well. And we brought this information to the local authorities in San Bernardino County, California, and asked them to charge these folks with um, two criminal counts. The first is violating California's anti-cruelty code, and the second is violating a specific law in California that prohibits the uh, movement with machines of um, these so-called downer cattle, cows who are too sick or injured even to walk. And uh, then on January 30th, we released our findings to the public. The plant was shut down, and, and, and you know the rest of the story. Right. Well, let's um, just, when you said your investigator gained employment there, we don't necessarily want to go s too much into the specifics of how that uh, was done or what uh, was going on. Uh, but I have to say, it's, it's just almost inconceivable to me to be, um, just to back up, when I was little, I would see anti-smoking commercials on TV, and they would have people actors smoking in the commercials and I couldn't understand how did they get actors to be in these commercials if they were anti-smoking and yet they were smoking and I, I later learned well there are many people who are smokers who wish that they weren't still smoking and in this case it reminds me of that because you had to have somebody who was willing to go in and do this who felt such a strong conviction about this that they were certainly that they were willing to certainly put their freedom on the line because uh, as you know, <laughs> taking photographs of what happens at our nation's slaughterhouses is above and beyond any other crime in America of any any similar scope because uh, that can be classified as terrorism. So this is somebody who's willing to do this, um, so obviously had this, this conviction and yet had to stand there and work and do this work every day and watch all of these animals be abused without saying... God damn it, stop it. Um, so I just, first of all, I have to salute uh, your investigator as I, I think somebody who is, um, and this I don't mean this hyperbolically at all, but a national hero. Um, and it's great that you guys were able to do that. 
but is there um, is there some process that you have in place for that? Are you are you looking at doing this in the future? Was it a one shot? What's the situation there? Well, um, first of all, thank you for your kind words about our investigator. I'll, I'll certainly pass them on to him. Um, and second, you know, the, the L.A. Times did a good profile on him, not using his name, of course, but they, um, they did do a, a good profile on him, which they talked a little bit about, about his background, noting that he's a vegan and that, um, you know, he, he is a full-time investigator for us. This wasn't the first investigation the Humane Society of the U.S. has conducted. It's not going to be the last investigation we conduct. In fact, uh, over the last 50-plus years that the Humane Society of the U.S. has existed, it has investigated all types of cruelty, from uh, the treatment of animals in laboratories to the treatment of uh, animals on, uh, in transport. To just a couple years ago, we uh, had one of our investigators gain employment in an egg factory farm, one of these battery cage confinement operations in Nebraska, and uh, released the footage from that investigation and tied it to some companies who are using eggs from that from mm-hmm. that facility. Um, so, it's not the first. It certainly won't be the last, and it's it's a hard thing to do for someone who cares about animals to go and work at a slaughter plant. Of course, it's very physically and psychologically taxing. I think that the key, though, to remember is that these animals who are going to the slaughter plant, whether or not an undercover investigator from the Humane Society of the U.S. is working there or not, they're doomed. They're going to be killed. So if one of our people is there, you know, scooping manure or even lining animals up to get them into the slaughter plant, it doesn't change the outcome for those animals. All that it means is the suffering that's inflicted on them by these employees who are torturing them will be documented and shown to the world. And so there certainly is a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance that can go along with engaging in these type of investigations because you have to be present and bear witness to cruelty that's absolutely unbearable. But... I think it's it provides solace to our investigators to know that their work will, in many cases, not only be seen by millions of Americans, um, such as this particular case, but also have such dramatic consequences. I mean, the plant has now been shut down for weeks. You've seen a, just a, a outpouring of support from the American public saying this is absolutely atrocious. We should not be treating any animals, including farm animals, like this. I mean, these type of investigations shine a bright spotlight on the very dark world of factory farming and and industrialized slaughter plants that animal agribusiness representatives try desperately to keep hidden from the public. We all know that the best disinfectant is a lot of sunshine, and that's the way that we view these investigations, essentially to document these animals' misery and then bring that misery to the public and let them make their judgment and bring that type of transparency to bear and then uh, let the cards fall where they may. Okay, well, we're, we've just about run out of time, but I, one thing that I really wanted to get, uh, get into was the interaction between the Humane Society and the USDA uh, just in terms of controlling the narrative. And obviously in the Humane Society's corner, you have this kind of incontrovertible uh, visual evidence of something happening at a given point in time in a given place. And then on the USDA side, they have the fact that they are this government agency that mainstream journalists uh, 
mistakenly, in my opinion, respect and believe when they say things. And um, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if you're seeing any of that change. I'm just uh, two of the stories that have just come out in the past 24 hours uh, that I found, uh, one from Reuters, where the USDA is admitting that they're not sure whether this plant is uh, the only one where this practice was going on, which those of us who, you know, have common sense, I think, would say, well, that would just be uh, an extreme coincidence if that happened to be the case. And the logical, you know, assumption would be, obviously, that it, it would be going on anywhere where they could possibly get away with it. And speaking of getting away with it, we now have uh, the Associated Press uh, talking to some former and current inspectors uh, who basically back up the investigators claim that the workers knew when the inspectors were going to be there uh, and could work around that uh, by saying that the, the inspection uh, system is so understaffed that they, they can't really always randomize their visits and uh, they think now that some plants actually have figured this out. So I'm wondering, do you, do you see just in the future that the, the whole edifice of the USDA as a uh, you know, an objective food safety agency that just happens to also have a promotional arm. Uh, do you see that kind of being knocked away, or is it something that you think that they'll be able to uh, kind of uh, pull out their their routine smoke screen and, and get away with? Uh, I definitely think that the fact that the USDA initially was alleging that this is an isolated incident lost the agency credibility. Um, first off, how could it know? If, it, if, it, if cruelty that was so overt as what was going on at this dairy cow slaughter plant in Southern California, if the agency didn't know about that, why would we suspect it knows about what's going on at the thousands of other federally inspected slaughter plants across the country? I mean, the agency simply doesn't know. And now, as, as you noted, it's finally admitting that. What we do know, though, is that the agency's own Office of the Inspector General has issued reports in the past criticizing the agency for extraordinarily lax enforcement. In fact, a couple years ago, the New York Times published a story about the USDA's Office of the Inspector General report at which it found at an Iowa slaughter plant where cows were being tortured, USDA's inspectors, while these cows were being abused, were sleeping, were playing video games on their computers, and were eating meat that had been improperly furnished to them by plant managers. And that's not the Humane Society alleging this. That's the USDA's own self-investigative arm right. saying this. So, uh, you know, and then look, two weeks ago, Tyson Foods, which is the largest slaughterer of chickens in the country, fired several of its employees and some of its southern uh, chicken slaughter plants for being caught on video by people for the ethical treatment of animals who put an investigator in there, and they caught these employees abusing birds on video. Those folks were got, ended up getting fired. It seems that the USDA, for the most part, is not catching abuse. And when an animal group goes in with a hidden camera and starts catching it, all of a sudden there's, a, there's an outpour of uh, interest and of media coverage, and people get fired, and sometimes they get charged with cruelty. But the USDA should not be relying on private animal welfare charities to do its job for it. It's a disgrace that, it's, that it takes an investigation, uh, a clandestine investigation by organizations that have no police powers whatsoever, like Humane Society of the U.S. and, and PETA and others, to uh, bring these abuses to light.
Right. I, I couldn't agree with more. And I, uh, you know, it's not your job to do this. And yet uh, it is uh, a good thing that you guys are out there uh, doing that. And again, I want to salute uh, the Humane Society and uh, the investigator for uh, getting this out there. And we can only hope that, uh, you know, with shining the light on this, it will uh, eventually kind of uh, sear its way into the brain of the uh, the common American who seems to have a short attention span usually and get outraged about this this week and then next week be uh, kind of have forgotten about it. So yeah. I, I really, I mean, this is uh, something uh, pretty epic in scope. So I'm I'm glad that uh, you guys are doing this, and I, I really appreciate you coming on to VegCast to talk about it. Vance, it's an honor to be on the podcast with you. Thank you very much for your kind words. I appreciate them greatly. Okay. And for anybody who wants to check out the video, if you haven't yet seen it, just go to humanesociety.org. Okay, and we'll also have a link in our show notes at vegcast.com. Paul Shapiro, thanks very much. Thank you, Vance. VegCast. Fox River Grove diverted 384 pounds of that piece to a processor to JTM is the processor. So it's a possibility that some of that beef did make it back to your school. Now, as far as they whether they served it or not, that I can't tell you. Let's see if there was any of the regular other stuff. No, the only thing that could have made it into Fox River Grove School District, and this is a district as a whole, was 384 pounds that was diverted to um, JTM turned around and turned that beef into a different product, either a meatball or taco meat or something like that, and sent it back to the school. That's from an MP3 put out by Dave Warwack. You may remember him from VegCast 33. He was fired by the Fox River Grove School District for, among other things, advocating that meat and dairy be eliminated from their own school lunch program. And now, having confirmed that uh, a large amount of this suspect beef was, in fact, delivered to that district and then sent off to be combined and commingled with other meat byproducts before uh, coming back there, uh, it does kind of raise the question of uh, whether maybe they should have listened to him about that. And we'll see if that affects uh, that ongoing case. But that's an interesting twist that's just one of the many ramifications that has come out of this case. Now, uh, as I mentioned, this was recorded with Paul Shapiro last week. And just in that time since then, many things have developed. Uh, The congressional hearings have begun. The HSUS has sued the USDA to close the loophole that does allow some downers into the food supply. And just as we go to tape... Uh, The attorney for one of the workers who was fired from the plant and charged criminally with uh, animal abuse has claimed that he was just following orders, which is uh, not all that surprising, but we'll see how that goes down with the powers that be. And, of course, we'll keep you updated uh, in future podcasts as to how this develops. But uh, just basically, you should keep your eye on this story as it does continue to move forward. And we're going to continue to move forward ourselves now with a tune that uh, I was a little hesitant to play because it is a very strange song, and yet 
uh, with all of this talk about the downers and the risk that they pose to uh, people who may actually have already eaten the beef and not know whether or not they have come down with this ailment. Uh, Here's something that tries to put a little bit of a zany kind of spin on the situation. It's Mad Cow Farm. Science. 
Our science fact for this 40th VegCast is animals are smarter than you think. That's according to the National Geographic magazine, which put uh, animal minds uh, as the headline of their current issue, uh, doing a survey of various studies uh, of animal behavior, which indicate that humans have underestimated animals' capacity, non-human animals, of course, that is, uh, for intelligence and for many of the mental attributes that we have long tried to claim uh, are what separates us from the animals, uh, the so-called human attributes of intelligence. Uh, So this is really a collection of studies. It's worth uh, looking at the whole article and seeing some of the separate studies. They do reference some of the things you may have already heard about, like uh, Betty the Crow and Alex the Parrot. Uh, But there are several very interesting uh, references in here to studies that I hadn't heard of, including uh, just as one example of how animals might be able to communicate with each other, even if we can't figure out how they're doing so There's a reference to two dolphins who were being studied, and uh, the human trainers were able to communicate on a very rudimentary level with them to request things of them and ask that the two dolphins create their own trick to do uh, and then do that. And the dolphins uh, swam around underwater a little uh, for 10 seconds and then burst out of the water, rotating in the same direction, clockwise on their axis, on their long axis, while spitting water out of their mouths at exactly the same moment. And uh, the the scientists who were studying them have no idea how they were able to basically get their act together, so to speak, uh, although if there are other ways for animals to communicate other than what we know, the basic verbal, uh, oral kind of tradition of language, uh, it would make sense that maybe they, they can do that and maybe we should uh, stop insisting that language as we know it is the, uh, the sine qua non of intellect and intelligence. Um, just one other thing, there's uh, an interesting uh, reference to animals being able to think back and forward in time They refer to a study uh, that was done with scrub jays uh, who seemed to know how long ago they hid a particular kind of food and managed to retrieve it before it spoils. And, uh, of course, there's also the study with the voles that also looked into this that we talked about on a previous VegCast. Uh, But the, the most humorous thing about this is that they cite this and then have a counterpoint from uh, somebody who... Uh, comes on Sarah Shettleworth uh, from the University of Toronto uh, claiming that animals are stuck in time. Since animals lack language, she said, they probably also lack the extra layer of imagination and explanation that provides the running mental narrative accompanying our actions. And uh, it's, it's just kind of a stunning statement because there's so many logical fallacies bound up into it that I can't actually go into all of them at once. But we don't know that uh, language is the only way that people can organize the information about the past, present, and future. Uh, So we don't know that that's necessarily lacking in animals either. But it just seems that there is a uh, 
tendency among the general public and among meat-eating scientists to try to play down the possibility that animals might be pretty much as smart as humans, but in a completely different way than we have so far recognized. Because if that's the case, then our ability to rationalize abusing animals and institutionalizing that abuse is kind of called into question. Unfortunately, National Geographic, of course, doesn't go that far into that issue. Uh, but I will have a link to in the show notes to a story that does, and it's one that we talked about back on uh, either the first or the second VegCast. But uh, for some of the people that have joined and started subscribing since then, perhaps that will be uh, something that's new to you. And for the rest, it'll be a little trip down memory lane to a long ago and far away edition of the Science Fact. Okay, we're pushing the 40-minute mark, so we're going to wrap this up real quick. As I promised you, we've had a full menu, but it's time to bring this 40th VegCast to a close. Thanks to our sponsor, Temptation Vegan Ice Cream, the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream. You can find more info on them at GoTemptation.com. Thanks to Paul Shapiro also of the Humane Society of the United States for talking with us about that investigation. And thanks to Green Beings for the song Mad Cow Farm. And we'll be back with you in a couple weeks with another VegCast. This time, uh, not so much as we have for the past couple with a doom and gloom about how terrible meat is and animal abuse is. More about the uh, fun of vegetarianism and the positive aspects. And until then, get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.